So now that we've uh, finished the book of John, we turn our attention just to one chapter for the next few weeks. So I'm going to preach one sermon in six parts over the next seven weeks. And so we're going to take one week off, but for the next um, six of the next seven weeks, we're going to be right here in Galatians, the fifth chapter. It's a series that we've entitled um, Set Free to Live Free. And so uh, let's pray and then we'll get started this morning. So let me, let me just also say this, that each week you're going to be left wanting. Like each week you're going to go like, wait a minute, but you didn't say, and that'll be true, I didn't say. And so that's because like, again, it's one sermon in six parts. And so it's going to take us a little while to get through it. So I hope that you can make it um, all the weeks, if not catch it on the podcast. And so um, let's pray now. As we've just read, Jesus, it is for freedom that you have set us free. And yet so many of us, we never really genuinely taste that freedom. And I pray for us now in this time, Lord, that we would, that we would see freedom. And I pray that by the power of your spirit through our belief in your gospel, that you would set us free, Lord. Lord, be with us in this moment. Be with us in this time. May we, have, uh, may we have ears to hear. May we have minds to understand. May we have hearts to love and to desire you in the fullness. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If I was to ask you to write down um, a list of words that enter into your mind whenever I say Christianity to you, um, maybe you can go ahead and think about that. So let me say it. You ready? Christianity. Now think about some words, some descriptors of Christianity. Um, there's probably a list that you can come up with, but let's be honest, many of us, it would be pretty far down that list before we came to the word freedom. But in fact, uh, many of you, maybe before you came to Christ, or maybe even now that you're in Christ, you may not understand the word freedom, or you may not associate the word freedom with Christianity. In fact, some of you here that may be checking out Christianity, some of you who have yet really genuinely to cross the line into faith in Christ, you may think just the exact opposite. The Christianity sounds uh, very restrictive. It sounds like the things that you can't do. It sounds like now there's like an obligation to fulfill. And yet look at what Paul says here. It is for, in the first verse, it is for freedom that Christ has set us together for uh, has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of bondage. In fact, we can say this, that everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ is about freedom. That the theme of Galatians is the theme of freedom. But it just doesn't stop with Galatians. It just didn't start in Galatians. But the entire Bible is dripping with freedom for us. This is by no, no, no accident or no mistake whenever you read the Old Testament. And that's where we're going after Galatians. Next year, we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 1. And about halfway through in the beginning of the spring, we're going to see the children of God. And the, the first glimpse of really the, the chosen children of God that we see in the book of Exodus, they're in slavery in a foreign land. And God shows up and exercises might and exercises his power and delivers them out of slavery into and takes them to the promised land. That's no accident. 
It's no accident that if you were to fast forward 36 books later, that when you find Jesus coming, the son of God, that Jesus shows up into a synagogue when he's gonna preach one of his first sermons, he picks up a scroll, he picks up a Bible, he turns to Isaiah chapter 61. And so Jesus was an expositor. Jesus is just teaching the truths from scripture. And he turns to Isaiah 61 and Jesus says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because, he is an- because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, he says, to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That Jesus's whole ministry, his whole mission was an operation of liberation. Listen, I'm gonna say a ton and I'm gonna say a ton throughout this sermon series. I'm gonna say a ton today, but this may be the most important thing that I'm going to say outside of the gospel, but this will be the most important thing. If you are in Christ, then you have been set free to live free. But it is totally possible to be free and never to live free. It is possible to be free and not to live free. Um, Did you know that a flea can jump eight inches? I'm gonna say that again. Did you know a flea? Somebody said, did he say fleas? Right, did you know a flea can jump eight inches? That in fact, if we were to have a bunch of fleas, not that I have a bunch of fleas, but if we were to have a bunch of fleas and we were to have them here in this jar, that every one of those fleas has within it the potential to jump out of this jar. And they could. If you scooped up a bunch of fleas and put them in here, they would all eventually jump out of the jar. But if you... Now, it's obvious right now they can't jump out of the jar, right? But this is what happens within fleas. They will jump and they will hit the lid of this jar for a little while. And then they will condition themselves that that's as high as they can jump. And you can remove the lid and not nurry a flea. Not a single flea will jump out of this jar because it's conditioned itself that that's as high as it can jump. It's conditioned itself by the lid. And that's the effect of sin. That the effect of sin has had in our lives is it has conditioned us that we can only jump so far. That for those of you who are believers in the room, those of you who have trusted in Christ and you've trusted in Christ alone, for your salvation, the forgiveness of sins, you have been declared free. That's what Paul is saying here. You've been set free. Your chains have fallen off. You have been freed and totally free by the work of Christ. And yet it is possible to be declared free and to be set free and to never live in freedom. In fact, it's even possible for some of us to experience freedom and then in a way to be scooped back up into the jar where we only live our lives inside the jar and not in freedom. And Paul is writing this book, he's writing this letter to the church of Galatians to declare to them, you are free, that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, the question that some of you may be asking is, 
Andy, what's freedom? And what does freedom look like? What, what are you talking about is for freedom? And how do I know if I'm, if I'm living free? How do I know if I'm living inside of the jar or outside of the jar? Well, here, our experience of freedom, living free, is in direct proportion to our enjoyment of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. See, I'm only going to get to about the fifth verse of expositing Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to get there in a minute. But it's on purpose that I wanted us to read the entire chapter of Galatians. And for the next six of the next seven weeks, we're going to read the entire chapter of Galatians. In fact, I would say like, hey, if you would like to memorize Galatians, I'm going to try to do that. I mean, Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to try to do that. It'd be a great exercise for you. It'd be a great, along with Romans 8, along with maybe I don't know, Isaiah 61. I mean, there's a, a Psalm 23. There's a, a handful of passages, of whole chapters of the Bible that I think it would do us well to have memorized. And I would include this in that short list. If you want to, if you want to memorize it, you absolutely join with me in memorizing it. But the reason why we read it all is so that we can see the, the connecting points our experience of freedom, living free, is in direct proportion to our enjoyment of the fruit of the Spirit in our daily lives. That it is Christ who has set us free. It is the perfect life. It's the substitutionary death. It's the victorious resurrection of Jesus that sets us free. It is Christ and Christ alone who sets us free. But listen, the means of us experiencing and enjoying freedom comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus just didn't stop with coming and living a perfect life. He didn't just stop with him dying in our place on a cross. He didn't stop with just dying on the cross, being placed in a tomb, rising again victoriously. Like that isn't the end of the story. That Jesus then again, he ascends on high where he enters into, back into the very uh, holy of holies, the real holy of holies, the heavenlies. And when he's there, he's coronated king of kings and Lord of lords. And he's entrusted to him is the spirit. And then Jesus himself, he pours out, he, he gives to the Christians, he gives to his church, he pours out on his church, he sends the spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and it is the spirit that makes the past work of Christ an historic event. It makes it a present reality and an experience in our lives. It is by the power of Christ that you have been freed, but it is the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes your freedom a reality. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, you need to, be, you need to walk by the Spirit. You need to be led by the Spirit. You need to live by the Spirit. You need to keep in step with the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit of God is active in our lives, the Spirit produces fruit, fruit that you and I get to enjoy. Fruit is a, is a, is a lifestyle that he's describing here. Look at what he says in Galatians 5.22. He says, here is the fruit that the Holy Spirit of God brings into your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, self and self-control. Gosh, what a life. Doesn't that sound good? Like John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill and to destroy, but I come to give you life and the abundance of life. What does that look like? It looks like that right there. We must ask ourselves, is that, your, is that a current description of your life? 
Does that currently describe the way that you live or is your life marked by worry and fear and guilt and indifference and apathy and frustration and touchiness and irritability, pride, arrogance, self-control, feelings constantly that you need to prove yourself? Let me ask you about your relationships. What are your relationship with God and your relationship with others? What does it look like? Is your relationship with God and your relationships with others, is it marked by genuine love, genuine affection, and genuine service, joyful service, or is your relationship with both God and others, is it feel very duty-driven, like duty-driven drudgery that sucks all the life and sucks all the joy out of those relationships and out of serving? Can I just state the obvious? Like those latter things, that's not life. That's not freedom. That's not why Christ has come to die to give us those types of experiences in our lives. In fact, that's what I'm talking about. That's the very jar. If your life is marked by those things, worry and doubt and fear and guilt and indifference and apathy and frustration and irritability, just disqualify myself from finishing the sermon, I think. I think I'm done for the day. I've got so much stuff up here. I thought I had some water. Is there water over there? Oops. That's the driving force for the sermon series. My life. <laughs> That's the driving force is our lives. The lives that we live the wives that we have. Throughout this, I want to just kind of make some notes. If you want, this would be, uh, again, this is a six-part sermon series. So point number one is this, and I'm going to call it freedom fact. It's freedom fact number one that you need to know. You want to live in freedom? Here's first truth you need to know. Is it your acceptance with God? God's real feelings of acceptance and delight and love for you comes from Christ's performance and not your own. Now, I know some of you in the room, you may say right now at this moment, you may say, wait a minute, worry and fear and guilt, those are real things that you're talking about, Andy. Those are real things. And now what you're talking about with this freedom fact thing, it's spiritual and ethereal and it's up in the air, it's theological about, Fear, worry, guilt, that's something that's real and that's something that's happened in my life and I'm feeling. Now what you're talking about is something else and there may be in some of your minds, there may be some sort of disconnect between what is spiritual and what is what you would say what is real. But let me just say this to you, that everything in your life is spiritual. That everything that in your life, that you are a spirit. It's the way that God has made you, the way that God has designed you. Therefore, everything about you is spiritual. A.W. Tozer said this, that, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you, the most important thought, most important thing that will enter into your head is what enters into your head when you think about God. In fact, if you were, and I use this illustration occasionally, but if you were to go to the doctor and you were to say to the doctor, hey doctor, I've got a fever and I've got chills and I've got a sore throat and I've got body aches all over. I've got all of these symptoms. What's wrong with me? And the doctor was to do a, a test, right? He was to do a, a flu test where they, take a, where they take a bristle brush and they shove it up your nose. 
That's a fun one. Really, that's the best you got, right? After all these years of medicine, the best you've got is you're gonna take a bristle brush and shove it up my nose. And yet they do that and you wince in pain and then, they, and then you sneeze a couple times, they pull it off and they go and they take a test and they come back and they say, hey, you've got a, you've got a virus. You've got a flu virus and the virus is the reason why you've got all of these symptoms out there and there's really not much we can do. And that's what they say. You just gotta kind of get over your virus and all of those things. Listen, in the same way, the negative emotions that you and I deal with on a daily basis for many of us, the guilt and the shame and the worry and the fear and the irritability, that's, that means just being grumpy all the time and the apathy and the indifference and the duty-driven drudgery that we feel about relationships and about serving and all of those things that you and I feel, those are the symptoms and the virus the true virus is, is our ability to properly believe the gospel. The virus that causes all of the symptoms is what we think about ourselves in relation to God and what we think about God in relation to ourselves. That is why freedom fact number one is foundational that you understand that your acceptance, that's, that's, God in heaven who knows all things when he thinks about you. See, Adam Tozer says, what enters into your mind is so important. When you think about God, what enters into your mind? What do you think about there? Do you think about God as being some cruel ogre, some cruel taskmaster that's in heaven? Do you think about God as being capricious, God as being far? What enters into your mind, but equally as important is what enters into your mind when you think about God thinking about you. God's real feelings of love and delight and acceptance of you comes based upon Christ's performance and not your own performance. And let's get into the text. Let's look at the first five verses. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it as Sarah read the text because Sarah's so sweet and her voice is so kind and innocent, but here's the tone of this text. Paul's mad. I mean, like Paul is angry and we tried to coach Sarah up on it, but she just couldn't do it. She just doesn't have it in her heart, right? You should have got somebody else maybe to read the text. Maybe like me, somebody that's angry and you would have picked up on the fact that Paul is, he's angry here. He's, he's dad mad. That's a whole nother level of madness is dad mad. And he's dad mad because some people are messing with his kids. And why is he so angry? The reason why he's so angry is that Paul has moved into the area of Galatia. He's preached the gospel in city after city. And he's seen God do an amazing work. And he's seen people be saved. And he's seen churches being planted. And now what's happened is a group of false teachers, folks have infiltrated into the area of Galatia. And they begin to, to preach and to promulgate and to teach something that is not the gospel something that, it, that doesn't apply to them, that's not true for them. And these false teachers called the Judaizers have come in and this is what they are teaching. They are saying that you must earn God's favor. You must earn God's delight. You must, you must accept, you must earn God's acceptance and God's love through law-based, works-based religion. Specifically, what they're preaching and teaching is a jacked up version of Judaism. That's why they're called the Judaizers. 
What they're saying specifically is, is that in order for the men to be saved, not only must you repent of your sins, not only should you be baptized, but they're saying a third point for the men that you need to be circumcised. Now, for those of you that are new to church, you're new to Christianity, and you're going like, does circumcision mean what I think it is? It does. It means exactly what you think it is. And we have no, no, we don't have time to go into that, but it does. And why? It's simply this, is that in the old, we could just say it simply this, it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign that you are in covenant relationship with God would be to, to be circumcised or to have your children to be circumcised. God has appointed it. And like I said, we don't have time to go in it, but it is a sign. It's saying, it's a, it's a work that you do to, to say that I'm in covenant with God. I wanna follow after God. And what Paul writes here is he's saying it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let me highlight the word again. Why does Paul say, do not submit again to a yoke? Now you understand what a yoke is, don't you? A yoke is an implement that a that a a farm animal would wear, an oxen or a mule. And so it would go around the farm animal and then there would be, you know, kind of ropes or chains or whatever attached to some implement, a plow or a cart, something heavy. And so the oxen would wear this. And so he's saying, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But here's the deal. That before Jesus, I mean, before Paul went into Galatia, these folks were pagan that before Jesus, the Galatians, they had never been Jews. They had been pagans. They didn't worship the God of the Bible. They worshiped pagan gods. They worshiped idols. They worshiped false gods. These people had, that's why he's saying you need to be circumcised. You need need to be circumcised because they'd never been circumcised. And now what he's saying here is he's saying, be careful that you do not submit again to a to another yoke, to a different yoke. Uh, submit again. They've never been submitted to the yoke of, 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 of the law. What he's talking about here, what Paul is saying is there are two types of slavery. There are two types of, there are two yokes that we can wear as human beings. The first one is the, the yoke of slavery and paganism. Now it's very obvious that those who, are, who have yet to repent of their sins and yet to trust in Christ and don't know God, that all of them, they are, they are bound, they are, they are bound in slavery to sin. That's an obvious thing there. That they're wearing, they're, they're carrying the, the weight of their, of their sin and it, and it bogs them down and it produces a life of guilt and a life of shame and a life of condemnation. It's, it's fear-based living. It's guilt-ridden li- living and that seeps out into every facet of their life. It touches everything. They're, they're hooked up to it and they're trying to pull the weight of their own sin behind them, but they can't pull it. They can't seem to manage. Now, there are those others that seem as if they're lost and they seem as if they can get through life. It seems like they're not weighed down. It seems like they're going through life and they're, they're able to pull it all on their own but yet we know that the weight is still there. And for them, it doesn't necessarily maybe show up as guilt and shame and condemnation, but it shows up as pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and moral superiority and a drive of success and overachievement. Basically, they're living life saying, look how strong I am and doesn't appear that they're weighted down, but yet they still are and they're still slaves to their sin. 
That's the first yoke. But there's a second yoke Paul is saying. Paul is saying, be careful that you don't put that yoke down and pick up a second yoke. <clears throat> it is the yoke that the, <clears throat> that the false teachers are trying to put on them. The new yoke is the yoke of legalistic, law-based religion. A religion that says, you must do this in order for God to accept you, love you, take delight in you. Now listen, my guess in the, is for those of us, especially men in the room, like you've never really thought about circumcision. As far as religion goes, right? Like those men in the room, people in the room, you probably never thought about it. You never thought about it as a religious thing. You never entered it into your mind. You've never been tempted to say, well, I probably need to get circumcised. Like you've never thought about that sort of thing. But the truth is, is the circumcision isn't the issue. The issue is anything that you may try and do to earn God's favor, to earn God's delight, to earn God's approval, to earn God's love. Whether it's religious performance or moral living or concern for the disadvantage or whatever you try to do in order to prove yourself, in order to win God's love, in order to win God. Like, in fact, in your community groups this week, you're going to talk about those very things. You're going to make a list of what's some ways that we as humans in 2019 that we try to establish a righteousness apart from the righteousness of Christ. A way that we try to win God's favor and earn God's approval in our lives. What are those things? But here's the, here's the premise in all of those things. It is acceptance and love comes through obedience. That's a false gospel that God's acceptance of you and his love for you comes through your obedience. It comes through obedience, but it comes through Christ's obedience and not your obedience. That there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he loves you if you are in Christ. Now, if you're apart from Christ, this is not true of you. If you've yet to repent of your sins, if you've yet to trust in Christ, if you've yet to bow a knee and submit to Jesus and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, um, wash me. Jesus, cleanse me. Jesus, all, count all of my sin on you on the cross and give me all of your righteousness. If you've yet to do that, then this is not true of you. But if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ and there is nothing that you can do to make God accept you, receive you, lavish his love upon you anymore because Christ has done it. And what Paul is saying is, is living like that, living to try to get God's acceptance, living to try to get, earn God's love, or living to try to win God's approval, that that is just as enslaving as paganism is enslaving that legalistic and religious and moralistic living, let me say that again, legalistic, religious, moralistic living, it may produce obedient slaves, but that is not the purpose of the gospel. That Jesus hasn't came and died on a cross to purchase us to himself in order to make us more obedient slaves, but he's come to purchase us and to make us his sons to make us sons of the Father. And what he's saying is, is there is a better way to live. There's a better way to live than 
to be tied down and yoked down into slavery or to, of, of religion or to be yoked to slavery of sin. There's a better way to live. And if you live like either one of those, it's gonna produce the same guilt-ridden, fear-based living or the same pride and the same self-righteousness and the same arrogance, and you will be no better off. Look at what he says in verse number two. Look, I say, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision in order to win God's approval and love, that's what we say, if you accept circumcision in order to win God's approval, in order to win God's love, then look, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Christ will profit you nothing, he's saying here that you will miss Christ and you missed everything. That is what he's saying. That if you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you subtract Christ out of it. If you see yourself as some kind of co-redeemer that you and God are doing this thing together, you and Jesus are yoked equally here and it's my obedience and Christ's obedience. And through both of those, then we are gonna make it into heaven. Then what he's saying here is Christ is of no advantage to you, that Christ saves us entirely and wholly because of his gracious, benevolent work or he saves us not at all is what he's saying here saying you can't add anything to Christ without subtracting him. In fact, for those of you that may be mathematical, because I'm gonna use, this, I'm gonna use a, a minus and a plus and an equals here. For those of you that are mathematical, you could say it like this. And paganism is this, it is everything minus Jesus and it equals nothing. Jesus taught, we saw it in the upper room. Apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. It isn't that you can't do stuff, you'll do stuff. Good grief, you may build a hospital and it'd be named after you, right? There are people who have died and gone to hell who have hospitals named after them. They've given money, they've been benevolent. It isn't that you won't do anything. It's just in the final analysis, when you stand before the just judge of the universe, that if you've done those things for yourself and not for him or somehow for you and him, that he will declare them to be nothing. It's not that you won't do things. It's just that you'll do things and stand before Jesus and he'll say, they count as nothing in front of me. You may have everything. And yet if you have Jesus, then you have nothing. And that's paganism. But here's the next one. Jesus plus anything, that equals nothing as well. And that is religion. That is Jesus plus your moralism. That's Jesus plus your religious performance. That's Jesus plus you being a good dad or being a good mom. That's Jesus plus anything else that you would say that, that, that saves you. How do I know if that's me or that's not me? Well, here, here, imagine this for just a second. You die and you will, right? That's just the truth of it. We don't like to talk about death, but that's just the absolute truth is unless Jesus returns, you and everyone you know, they're gonna die and you are gonna die. And moments after, a second after you die, you're going to stand before Jesus. Not St. Peter, not Pearly Gates. You're gonna stand before the just judge of the universe who knows all things, that, that knows the heart of every human being knows everything about you, better than your mama knows you, your spouse knows you, anybody knows you, Jesus knows you infinitely better because he knows all things. You're gonna stand before him and everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you're gonna ever have thought, the words that you bridled in your mouth, they're gonna be on the forefront. Jesus is gonna know that and you're gonna know that. And then Jesus will ask you maybe one question, 
why should you enter into my reward? Why should I let you in to heaven? Why should I give you and grant to you eternal life? And in that moment, what do you say? What's your answer in that moment? Jesus, I tried. Right? Jesus, I did my best. Jesus, I did some good things. Whatever you say in that moment, unless it's just this, Jesus, you, you did it all. You did it all for me. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to deserve. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Right? Jesus, you're my righteousness. That's all you got. And in this moment, if you say anything else in that moment, you're missing the gospel. And you're enslaved and you don't know freedom. Because how good is good enough? That's the problem. The problem in this room is many of us would say, well, it's that and I've been a good citizen. I've been a good person, but how good's good enough? You think he grades on a curve? Like we can feel self-righteous in ourselves that we look on Facebook and we see like, man, I would never feed my kids that. I'm better than that parent. I never let my kids go trick-or-treating, wearing a witch's costume, right? What is that? That's paganism. I'm better than that parent. Or you look at the news and you see some criminal out there. I'd never do that to my children. I'd never do that to another kid. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, gosh, good grief. No, that's a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. Your moralism, your good life, your religious performance, your whatever is not a sufficient savior. And what Paul's saying, if it was a sufficient savior, then why did Christ come and die on a cross? Why did Christ come? Why did he get nailed to the cross? That if you take anything plus Christ, then you have nothing. You've subtracted Christ. You've taken Christ up. Christ is of no advantage to you. That's what the apostle Paul is saying here in this text. Verse three, I testify again to every man who has accepts circumcision that he is obligated He's obligated. That's, 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 he's a debtor to keep the entire law. You're now under an obligation to keep the law. You're now under an obligation of religious performance. You're now under obligation of, of, of moralistic living. You got to keep that up. And then verse number four, you are severed from Christ. Now that's a play on words there. Going back to that circumcision part. You've been severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away, he's saying. You've been removed from grace. Grace is of no advantage. You don't need grace anymore because you can do it on your own. You can help God out in salvation. There's no need for Christ. What Paul is saying here is there are two ways. Not only are there two yokes, but there are two ways in which we can relate to God. The first way that we can relate to God is as a slave as a debtor who must work it off, a slave who must become acceptable to his master by presenting himself or herself a valuable service. 
And that's a graceless way of living. That's a restless way of living. You never rest because it's you yoked to this thing of sin and you're trying to pay it off and you're trying to do it and you're trying to drag it. And how can you ever rest and know and lay your guilt down? How can you ever rest knowing enough is enough? There may be something else and I didn't pray enough and I didn't read enough and I didn't study enough and I didn't go to that class enough and I didn't, and you're collapsing under that because you think of, You're relating to God as a slave. That now I must be a valuable service to God. Now I gotta do something for God. Now there has to be some other way in order for me to to win the master and win an honorable standing in the house. The bell rang. That means Sunday school's over. That's what that means. Or you could be a son or a daughter or an heir. That's the second way, a son or a daughter or an heir. And that is the theme of Galatians. The theme of Galatians is freedom, but how do we become free? What was actually in chapter four? We didn't read the the entire book of Galatians, although we certainly could, but here's the way that we become free. The way that we become free is whenever we know that we've been adopted into the family. As many of you know, I have a, an adopted daughter. Her name is Safira. We, my wife and I, we adopted her from Haiti and she always said, adopted. I'd say, how did you get here? And she'd say, you adopt, you'd adopted me. And that's what Paul's saying here. You gotta know that you were adopted. That when you became a believer in Christ, you were adopted into the family. Look at what he says, chapter four, verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and a daughter. And if a son and you are an heir through God, those in Christ, we relate to God, not as a master, not as an employer, not as someone that we must please, but as a father that is to be enjoyed and to be loved. Not as a master, not as an employer that needs to be pleased, but you and I, we enjoy God as a father to be loved. That an adopted child rests in the standing he has with the father by virtue of love, commitment to care for, included into the family in order to be provided for and to be protected by. You don't have to work to get into the family. You don't have to put yourself in the position of a slave anymore. Don't do that is what Paul's saying. Why do you want to be slaves again and treat God as a master, treat God as an employer instead of treating God as a father? Today, I want us to focus on the truth of the gospel. In fact, what Paul says in verse number five, is he says that for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, this is key. This text is key in our understanding of, what, of, of the gospel, and it's key in understanding our freedom. This is where the freedom fact number one comes from. But it's a little hard to understand because of the English and the biblical language being used. So what he's saying here, let me, let me define two, two terms in here. 
First one is the term righteousness. When he means righteousness, it's the, it's the way that you would be accepted. That's what he means. It's the basis of our acceptance. Righteousness means more than just our goodness, but it's, a, it's to be completely right and perfect record of the right relationship with God. The second word, so that's righteousness. It's, it's to be received by God. It's to know that you're okay with God, that you're at one with God. But let me give you the second one. It's the word hope. See, if I was to ask you about hope, you'd say, oh, I understand what hope is, but you don't understand biblical hope. That in fact, for us, whenever I would say hope, what enters into your mind is probably either certainty or uncertainty. Whenever I say like, hey, you know, I'm really hoping that the Wildcats get off to a better start than they did last year. Like what I'm saying is I'm, I'm hopeful of it, but I don't have no certainty. I mean, they may get crushed Tuesday night just like they did last year when they played Duke. That could happen. That's a reality. I have no certainty of that. In fact, I kind of suspect that's what's going to happen, but I'm just saying that's what we would say. Hey, I hope that they're good this year, but I have no certainty in knowing whether they're going to be good or they're not going to be good. I'm going to have to see them and observe them and watch them and see how they interact. And then I'll know with some certainty whether they're going to be good or not. And so when we say hope, that's the way we think of hope. It can either mean certainty or uncertainty, but when the Bible uses hope, it always means certainty. That's what hope means in the Bible. It's the exact opposite of the way that we use it. It means a powerful assurance and certainty of something. And what Paul is saying here, as you live your life today, you're eagerly awaiting and you're hopeful, not, not certain, but totally confident that there's going to be a moment in the future when God is going to receive you into his family. There will be a future glorification that is going to occur Whenever you stand before the just judge of the universe and he says, you know, he judges you, however that is. I mean, I'm just putting that in. That's not in the Bible that he's going to ask you this question. I mean, that's better than some of the jokes we've heard, but nevertheless, right? He's going to ask you this question. I'm just saying that. Like, I think that's good for us to evaluate. But nevertheless, whenever you stand before the just judge of the universe and he knows all things, that what's going to occur, this is what Paul's saying, there's a future hope that's going to happen, a certainty that I know that what's going to occur is the just judge of the universe is going to swivel around his chair and he's going to climb down from behind, from off of his throne, from behind his bench. And he's going to meet me and he's going to hug me. He's going to love me. He's going to lavish me. He's going to receive me. He's going to say to me, good, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, child. You're my child and I love you enter into your reward, enter into heaven, enjoy yourself, enjoy me, worship me, right? That's what he's gonna, that's what he's saying. I'm living my life today with this, with this assurance, this total confidence that there's coming a moment in the future when God's gonna receive me and love me. And I'm living my life today in light of that. That is why freedom fact, number one, is so important that you have to know that your acceptance with God, God's real feelings of acceptance and delight for you today and tomorrow comes on the back of Christ's perfect performance and not your own. Let's pray. Jesus, may we live free lives. You ascended on high and you sent your Holy Spirit that we may walk in step with the Spirit, that we may be led by your spirit and that we may experience the fruit that your spirit brings to us. 
And I pray for us that that would be our experience, Lord. And Lord, as we come to a time where we remember your work, may it engender real sense of love from us. When we think about the great grace, the great grace that's displayed here. May it do a work in us and in our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.